Matthew 6, freedom, freedom from anxiety, part 4. It seems like quite a while since I've been able to teach you, and I look forward to these next three weeks. And just to let you know, I'll be teaching the next three weeks you saw in the Anchored Thoughts, but also on the 24th, Christmas Eve, we will gather. I'm not sure how many people will be here Christmas Eve, but we'll gather and we'll just have special um, foods for you and things like that, and we'll just fellowship. And I'm not sure if we're going we're to think about, do we sing some songs together? And music. Food and music. There we go. So food and music So is what we'll have on the 24th. And then the next Sunday is the 31st. We won't have a regular time. We'll just gather fellowship time as well. Then for those that want to come to our home, as I said, we'll have the sign up for that on the 31st. So I'm going to take advantage of these next three weeks and try to finish up this series on anxiety. Uh, As I looked at it even this morning again, it may need a fourth one just for the Q&A. I can finish the text in three weeks, but to also add the q and I'm not sure that may bleed into January. But uh, we'll see how the Lord leads us in that. So we come to this fourth lesson because in the text we said that there are seven principles as a cure. Now we've covered some, obviously, together in prior lessons, but we now come to the sixth cure uh, for anxiety. And when I say a cure, I mean biblical perspectives that will help you address anxiety and worry because worry, anxiety is not something that's new. Um, I, on my little, my Sunday walk this morning, as I traditionally do, and I have my little Facebook Live and telling folks how they can pray for me and what I'm teaching, I mentioned then, as I have mentioned before, uh, that Americans spend about $42 billion on anti-anxiety drugs and therapy. Think about that. $42 billion. I mean, with $42 billion, you can affect a country. You really can if you infuse that into its economy. $42 billion. And as I have said before, um, that largely... When we think about treating anxiety the way that we at times do, uh, it's largely a Western uh, phenomenon. Um, People in the world face the same difficulties that we face, but there are certain things, I think, in Western culture that we find ourselves worrying about and fretting about that other people don't think about. Uh, Even this this morning, I was making mention of this fact that uh, we can think about what do I do about my future? Will my pension be sufficient? Uh, Will my retirement plan be enough for me? Will I have to leave California and go to Idaho or to Tennessee or to somewhere else on the East Coast like people are doing? And they're not doing it because they're fretting necessarily. They're just finding other opportunities there. And we think about these things. Will it be enough for me? But when you think about that, 401Ks in Zambia, uh, 401Ks in Nicaragua, 401Ks, and I can keep going on and on and on, uh, and whether or not you know, my pension is going to be sufficient. Pension? What are you talking about? Pension. What is that? Uh, and w- or will the um, health care plan that I have, I'm not sure if I can pay that deductible. Deductible? What are you talking about? 
as you understand my point, do you not? People live, the vast majority of the world lives very differently than we do. Um, but we find ourselves more anxious and worried about life in Western culture when we have so many resources readily available for us. And we can spend $42 billion on this just in America. I mean, that's the economy of certain countries. But this is where we are. And so the question comes up, well, is it unique in that the issue of anxiety and worry and the concerns of life are more concentrated than it was 2,000 years ago uh, when Jesus spoke these words. There are obviously variables today that are, that are different than it was in the past. But nonetheless, Jesus said, here is the cure for uh, worry and anxiety. And as you look to the Psalms, he's saying, um, I have anxious thoughts. How do I deal with my anxious thoughts? Here is the cure for it there as well. And you see it throughout Scripture. So the question comes up, has God failed us all this time? Has he failed us? What is your position on that? What would you say? No, he has not. Now, let's, obviously, there's certain things that have developed over time. Uh, they Say, for instance, with the development of penicillin. How many lives have been saved because of that? And lives that were lost in ancient civilization uh, because it wasn't available to them. So God has, in time, said, as uh, history develops, man develops, and he can... Uh, use his resources for the betterment of mankind, and lives can be saved because of the things that are available. I'm going to go to the surgeon tomorrow at 6 a.m., and guess what? Uh, 2,000 years ago, you just had a, a stick, and you walked around with a limp. That's what you did. There is no sense in which you go in, um, and the surgeon says, in an hour and a half, you have a new hip. Once the um, you come out of, you know, the anesthesia wears off. Uh, you can walk up and down, and we have and even showed me. Oh, I've seen it before. Here's some stairs to practice your steps. Unheard of. So there's a benefit from that standpoint, and obviously, uh, development, man's developments can help in certain ways. But this issue about a mindset of anxiety and worry—that's very different. It's very different uh, when people were faced with drought. Just like today, facing drought. Wars and rumors of wars all around them. So what were they supposed to do? People have been scrapping for life for millennia. And so what are they supposed to do as well? Do they become worrisome and anxious? And they did, but there was a solution. And so it was Mueller who said... Um, and I keep repeating this every lesson, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. When we truly trust in the Lord, then that can help us overcome our anxieties. Now, anxiety has been defined this way, as a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts the channel into which all other thoughts are drained. And that's a beautiful uh, picture, if you will, because if I was out with a young fellow yesterday and we went for a walk, I said, here's my last hike uh, with this hip uh, is what I did. And it's a beautiful trail. If you go to the end of Via Princesa and that trail will take you up to a ridge 
um, that goes for about five miles, and you get to one height of it, and you can look back over into Placerita Canyon while you're also looking over this direction as well. And he asked me a question because some of the, the ridges there, he says, well, do you think this is caused by the flood? I said, probably not. However, there are areas that were. And we talked about that for a moment in Strata and the evidence of that being by the flood. And because there's a certain gush of water that comes through. And this is sort of the picture that's here. It's like this fear comes into the mind. And sometimes it can be slow and slow. And it begins to, to create a cavern, if you will, in the mind. And your other thoughts of trust and rest and peace get drained away. And sometimes the events of life come like a flood, if you will, and it's like a grand canyon that's created, and your, your pictures of God and your trust in God and your peace get swept away with it. And that's what happens with anxiety. And this is why it has to be addressed spiritually. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, there are these good words, the good words of Matthew 6, because Proverbs tells us that this good word will help those who are ancients. Um, number one was, how can you gain freedom from anxiety? Uh, verse 25, look at Matthew six twenty-five, And we've been through these, but just quickly, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or your body as to what you should put on. Is life not more than food and your body than clothing? So these things are temporary. Don't be anxious. Then number two, in verse 26, you also have to gain freedom from anxiety by considering human life and lesser beings. Why? Verse 26, look at the birds. Um, your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? So you can learn a lesson from even nature, and you must ask a question. I do have real needs. The needs are real. The cure for anxiety is not pretending that they don't exist, but it's the reality that you must face. Your heavenly father is fully aware. So Christ says, if he cares for the birds, wouldn't he care for you? Surely he will. Then verse 27, we know that it's a, a neg- there are negative effects to anxiety, and that's true. Um, it can damage a person. Um, that's why sort of worry uh, weighs the body down. This is why uh, people have to at times be receive medical care because they've allowed it to go so far and it's had a negative effect on their life. Verse 27, and who are you and and who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? So Christ is saying this fourth principle here is look at the negative effects on it. Will it add to your life? It will not. And if I were to ask you right now, uh, for those of you at some point in time, you felt worry or you felt anxiety and you say, you know what? I just continued in my anxiety and my life was better. No one says that, do you? You continue in your anxiety and what happens? Oh, I don't feel what? Well, I don't feel well. And it will have a negative effect on the body. So you can't add anything to your life. So why are you worrying? Uh, you can't change all these events in life, so why are you worried? And then the fourth principle is verses 28 to 30 and the second part of verse 32. Um, you have to gain freedom by considering the providence of God. 
And he says, why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow, because they don't even toil or spin. Solomon in all of his glory was not like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow it's gone, will he not clothe you, you of little what? Faith, he says. God's providence, that is God's care for his creation, remembering that he is a heavenly father that will meet your every need. And then notice the latter part of verse 32. Your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. So that is a part of it. Then principle number five, it's a bad example. Verse 32, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And that word is important, seek, because we're going to amplify it in a bit in verse 33, because the cure there is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They are seeking these things. You're not to seek these things. Your life is to be the opposite of the world. Your life is to be the opposite of the Gentiles. And here, Gentiles um, is simply meaning, obviously he is referring to those outside of Israel, but it's a bigger picture here to say for us today, Gentiles would simply mean unbelievers. Why are you behaving like unbelievers? You're behaving like an unbeliever, and an unbeliever, think with me for a moment, does not have what we have. We all agree with that, do we not? (laughs) Absolutely we do. What is it that they do not have? They do not have life. They do not have the mind of Christ. They do not have an eternal perspective. And here, in this context, they do not have a heavenly father. We have a heavenly father who cares for us. They don't have that. So they have to, in one sense, get control of life as best they can. They have no heavenly father to rest in, to trust. And then, it's a bad example, and then this brings us to where we are today, by the priority of the kingdom. The priority of the kingdom. And then next week, even, we'll get more into the priority of the kingdom and talk about the present, because he says... Each day, verse 34, has enough trouble of its own. Why add to it? Um, A reminder of God's providence. This is important because we're saying in verses 28 to 30, and then 32b, God's providence. Charles Harch said, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Providence, therefore, includes preservation and government. So God is ordering all of his creation. Everything is working together for a cause. Um, At the ladies' um, time on Monday, Women Walking Wisely, I had the privilege, Kevin Zuver taught for two weeks before me. I'm teaching for the next couple of weeks, then Bill is going to teach. And my text was, the chapter was chapter 3, but also chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes. Um, There is a time for what? Every event that's under the sun, if you will. And God has made it all beautiful in whose time? In his timing. That's providence unfolding. And so we have to trust that. It's also this. Karl Barth said that God fulfills his fatherly lordship over his creation by preserving, accompanying, and ruling the whole course of its earthly existence. Every moment, nothing escapes the living God. 
I've mentioned to you before about this surgeon uh, that's going to perform uh, this wonderful procedure tomorrow. Um, and how I met him, I had been, first of all, you know, the mixed diagnosis was interesting. A couple years of maybe not going in the right direction could have made it worse, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but eventually realized, oh, here's your issue. Um, I got a recommendation from someone who's very, very good and one of the best. I have a friend who does this surgery on the East Coast. He said, well, who, what's his name? I'll look him up. And he looked at Gap. He said, oh, this guy's stellar. He's a rock star. Absolutely go with him. And I said, well, great. I trust you. I'll do it. And uh, so planning for it. Then all of a sudden, he can't do it because he's taking time off. And he recommends only two other surgeons. Only two. So I called one that was in his hospital thinking he's been influenced by him. He can't see me for a while. So I called the other. And he says, they were like, oh, I I don't see how it's going to happen. The doctor is such and such because he's the co-director of the department at Cedar. So he's a busy man. I don't see how it's going to happen. I said, really? It would be really helpful. My travel, things like that. And they said, well, give me a moment. Give me a moment. Then all of a sudden she said, oh, this is interesting. An appointment's available for you. (laughs) Right here, right? Amen. (laughs) Providence. She says, an appointment's available for you. Can you come in? It was like, can you come in tomorrow? I was like, do you think I can come in tomorrow? (laughs) Absolutely. I'll sleep overnight. (laughs) Like it's a good, what are are those things, Black Friday deals or whatever? (laughs) I don't, hopefully none of you were sleeping overnight. Yeah. Yeah, I would sleep overnight to be there. And she says, come on in. And then we get have the appointment, and I said, but still, when, when can you see me? And again, oh, how about, you know, end up being December 4th, opened up for me, that I could come in. Because initially, say, oh, I don't know about that, that's, that's going to be a bit of a strain. And lo and behold, here it is. Details of life. You came here this morning, every detail, every stoplight, when you got off that freeway, God is aware of it. And I was even sharing with the ladies on Monday. I said there was a, some, a time years ago I was picking up my son. Two of them were in a camp. They were volunteering in a camp. And I believe it was in Wrightwood. And I remember being a little late, you know, getting started. And I don't like being late for things. And I thought, oh, this is throwing me off. And then I come to this other light. And it just seems to be really, really long. And the person, I'm saying, make the left turn. Will you make the left turn? <laughs> Have you ever been there before? Yes, you have. Just go ahead and admit it. Remember, we're in church right now. And even if we weren't in church, God hears and sees. Amen? You're like, make the left turn, friend. Please, friend. And he doesn't make the left turn, so I'm stuck there again. Then I said, okay, de- decompress, Hargrove. And then I, so I'm, I pick up my boys. We come around this bend. Huge accident. Find out later, Fatal. And I said to myself, isn't that interesting? I wonder. You know what I mean? You understand what I'm thinking right now? I wonder. See, every stop sign, every person that's not making that left turn, (laughs) every moment of life is controlled by the living God. The living God. The living God. So you have to rest in that. That's the reality. And so we have to remember that we have a heavenly father. 
And I brought these texts to your attention, but let's look at them again. Chapter 6 and 7, verse 1, your father who is in heaven. Verse 4, your father who sees what is done. Your father. Verse 6, he again, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 8, what does it say? For your father knows. Verse 9, our father who is in heaven. Verse 14, what does he say? Your heavenly father will forgive. Verse 15, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. 18, it comes up again. But your father who is in secret and your father sees what is done real, will reward you. And then 26, and yet your heavenly father feeds them as we read a moment ago. Verse 32, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 11. If then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who do what? Ask him. You have a heavenly father. You have to remember that. And so anxious about life and, and the needs of life. And sometimes... It's not even that we're anxious at times over the needs in life. We're anxious over the preferences of life. Preferences of life. Because having the best retirement plan is not a need. Do we all agree on that? Uh, it's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. <laughs> See, that's why we spend $42 billion. That's why we spend $42 billion. <laughs> So <laughs> you knew I was going to come back, right? So you, <laughs> all right, it's cool, <laughs> right? So preferences, and often our anxieties over preferences. Now, of course, there are other anxieties that we can have that are real. Your loved one, they're in that automobile accident that we saw that was fatal. And you get a call from someone. And they say, we're here on the road, and are you the wife of? Is this such and such? That's going to create some anxiety. What do I do? What if it is a, you know, it's a husband that dies, and now it's the mom and the four kids that are at home, and now she's wondering, what am I going to do? I haven't been in the workplace for 25 years. He's taking care of us. We can understand there may be some what? Anxiety and some worry. That's not a preference. That's real life. It's hitting you pretty hard. But still you have a heavenly father who cares for you. That's, that's what we have to understand. And they're real things. You know, this surgery tomorrow, someone said, well, I pray that you won't be, you know, concerned. Or, I'm not. I'm, I'm just looking forward to it. Uh, I just am. Let's get this over with. Um, but it could be different. It could be, okay, we're going to go in. We've discovered this a bit too late, but there's a chance. It's spread to your other organs now. But we're going to give it a shot. But let me be real with you. Have a talk with your loved ones. See, that's very different, isn't it? It's very different. Yeah. So will life bring you that as well? Absolutely it will. 
Some people on the other side of that phone call, I hate to tell you this. It was a bad accident. But still, our Heavenly Father is our Heavenly Father. So we have to at times determine, is this really a need, preference here, lifestyle decision that I'm worried about and concerned about? So we move ahead. In this sinful world, there will be difficulty. Look at Ecclesiastes with me. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Keep skipping right past it. There we go. 13 and 14. And it says, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, what does he say? Be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the... Oh, that's troubling for some people. Because the prosperity um, perverts, the prosperity false prophets, they say in the day of prosperity, be happy because God surely made that. Absolutely. That's all he makes for his children. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to have that wonderful, wonderful retirement program. So you can go away and you can have your place near the 18th hole of the golf course and you can live for the glory of God and all the unbelievers will look at you and say, he must be a child of God because look at his life. That's the perversion that they preach. But life is not that way. Do we all agree? It's not that way. And here he says, in the day of adversity, consider, hold on a moment. Because you may think, well, surely God has made this day of happiness He says, hold on a moment. God has made the one as well as what? The other in his hand. And this is why at times this, um, what has been called a frowning providence. A frowning providence is at times it brings difficulty to our life, but nonetheless it is providence. And God uses that frowning providence to mold us more into the image of Christ. And this is something you have heard a thousand times over. But I say it now for a thousand and one. Put it on the record, a thousand and one. We all know that difficulty, when responded to properly, makes us more like Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? And I'm not saying that prosperity doesn't. Sometimes we can walk in the prosperity and the blessings that God has given us, and we appreciate and we thank the Lord for it. But also it's those trying moments of life that mold us more into the image of of Christ. He says, notice verse 14, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. That is, you cannot put life into order that you want to. God has made both. And don't think that life is always going to be this way for you. It just won't be. There may be a moment, one moment you have happiness and joy, and the next moment you have tears. But still rest. In God's providential hand. So the implications of it are clear. God is able, because he's an all-powerful sovereign God, he is knowledgeable, he knows what you need. Uh, Matthew 6, 8, he is concerned, he has a heart for you, you are his children, he is willing. And this is why he says, why don't you ask, seek, and knock? Ask, seek, and knock. And he is sovereign, which means it's going to be in his timing and his way. And that's at times where life sort of rubs, if you will, 
uh, because the timing isn't what we would propose. Everyone in this room, and you know it to be true, if I were to say to you, have there been events in life where you would have preferred another timing? Of course. Like it might even be today. Lord, why now? Why not then? Why at this opportunity? Why didn't it open up then? Why is this door closed? That is God's sovereign timing and ways. And we have to believe that our Heavenly Father is an all-wise God who knows the best time and the best way. Amen? He does. But this is the Christian faith now. Yeah, forget the little formulas that these false preachers tell you. Or you've heard from your past that you're still trying to root out of your mind and your thinking. That sometimes seem to be, oh, maybe that is a better way. It's not. So when we're anxious, we offend God's integrity. His promises are true. His ability. He is capable. His love for us. His wisdom and purpose. Do not offend the Lord. We don't want to, but sometimes we do. So go back to Matthew chapter 6. We can gain freedom from anxiety by considering the priority of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 6. And it tells us what? The verse that we have learned, some of you may have even knew it before you really even knew the Lord. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be what? Added to you. So I want to break the rest of these messages down into, we're going to talk about the elements of seeking, and I'm going to give them to you today. We will get through them. The conditions for seeking. How do, we, how do we become this seeker of God? What are the benefits of seeking when we seek the face of God? What's the practice that is necessary? And then I'm going to, at the end, show you the contrast between the person who is a seeker and the person who is a worrier. So this morning, though, simply seek first the kingdom of God. So the what or whom are we to seek? Well, it's his kingdom and his righteousness. To seek God's kingdom involves a concerted effort to do what? To expand and to live up to God's moral standards drawn from his righteousness. Um, Romans fourteen seventeen, important verse. Romans fourteen seventeen says, the kingdom of God is righteousness. So when we're seeking his kingdom, we are seeking the righteousness of God, that moral standard that we are called to live by. And it must involve a life-controlling effort for us. And I do mean that a life-controlling effort for every believer that we're going to be a seeker. Why? Because the word seek here, a present active imperative, command, that is you must keep on seeking. I command you to keep seeking is what he's saying. And this idea of seeking carries the idea of straining. It is not something we take lightly. And this is why we see throughout Scripture, seek first, seek me. When you seek me, you will do what? You will find me. We're to seek the Lord. And what is the standard? It's obvious. It's his righteous standard. Who are we to seek? It's the person of Jesus Christ. He is that king. And how are we to do it? It's a concerted effort. Why must we seek? Friend, it's not just to, quote, overcome anxiety. Our lives depend on it. 
So this is not, okay, I'll seek God because that will help me with worry. No, you seek God because that's your life. That's who you are. So what are the elements of seeking? Let's work our way through them. I'll move ahead there. The elements of seeking. Um, Turn with me to Psalm 37. We're going to finish. Well, we're coming back to Philippians 3, I think. We may end up just in Psalm 37. We'll see how it unfolds. I won't rush it. I have a couple more Sundays, and we'll let it unfold. So the elements of seeking. I mean, when we look at Psalm 37, in this psalm, it's a call to live free of fear and anxiety amid the wicked who are in the land. And this psalm of David, and it's going to give guidance on how to live a moral and really God-fearing life. When all the provocations of life are around us and we ask ourselves, how do we respond to it? And in Psalm 37, what is David doing? David is reflecting on the faithfulness of God even in his old age. Notice verse 25. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken are his descendants begging bread. Throughout my life, and David's life was obviously a life of difficulty, was it not? Many highs and lows, but he says in the end, one thing is true, God is faithful. And sometimes we confuse the idea of faithfulness, and we think, well, faithfulness means or concludes, like the first part of Ecclesiastes 7, I'm always going to have prosperity. That's not faithfulness. No, faithfulness is the idea that God is going to abide by what he has promised. And so we rest in that. And he's saying that God is going to care for his people. Now, Psalm 35, 36, and 37 are related. All are dealing with the God's righteous judgment of the wicked. Look at Psalm 35. Psalm 35, 8. He says there that the wicked will fall into destruction. He says in Psalm 36, look at 36, 12. He says there, the doers of iniquity have fallen. And then in 37, 2, notice what he says here in 37, 2. He says, they will wither quickly like the grass. 37, 9, evildoers will be cut off. So all of it together is saying, yes, you look around you, you see the wicked and they seem to be mounting And they seem to be prospering and they're putting pressure on you. And it's causing you to fear and have anxiety. Rest assured that God's justice will unfold. So don't fret. Don't worry. Don't fear is what he's saying. Now look at some key words that are really important. Uh, And the structure unfolds this way. Notice what he says in verse 1. Do not fear because of evildoers. And then he says, next, trust in the Lord. Then he says, dwell in the Lord. Then he says, do good. And then you must cultivate faithfulness. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in the Lord, he says. And then from trust, he says, verse 7, rest in the Lord. But again, he says, and do not fear. And then he says in verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. And why is he communicating that? This pattern of ideas that if you're going to deal with the pressures that are around you in life, and maybe at times creating anxiety, 
you have to do what? Trust, dwell, cultivate, delight, commit, trust, rest, and cease from your anxieties. That's what he's communicating. So let me give you, I think I can do it in these moments here. Uh, There are eight of them, but I'll maybe get to four. We'll pick it up next week. Number one, you have to trust in God's provision. Trust in God's provision. Notice 37.3, the first part of verse 3. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And then he says in verse 5, the latter part of it, Trust also in him, and he will do it. Trust is the beginning of our Christian faith, is it not? It all began with trust. It all began with us saying, I cannot trust self. I must rely on the divine. And so David calls the people of God to say, rely upon him wholly and completely. Let it be a lifestyle choice. And then notice, if you will, the second element of this seeking. So going back, when he says, seek first the kingdom of God, what does that mean to be a seeker of God? It's trusting in God's provision. It's also this remembering God's faithfulness. Verse 3, because he says, the latter part, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Now, some of your translations will some may even say, feed on his faithfulness. If you, if you look right there, you may see in the margin, it will say, feed on his faithfulness. Or some may even say, graze on his faithfulness. Why is that important? To remember his faithfulness. Why this idea of grazing and even feeding on his faithfulness? Uh, the Nasby here has cultivate. And that's a good word because when we think about cultivating something, what comes to mind? You can tell me real quick. What comes to mind? Nurturing, Nurturing right? A plant even. You're, you're cultivating the ground, right? You're tilling it over. You're paying attention to it. Uh, and some in, your, in a margin may even say your translation, translation may even say feed on its faithfulness. That's another good image, is it not, right? What do we need to feed on every day? Oh, the word of God. <laughs> Amen. What was, oh, boy. I'm telling you. Yeah. Oh, boy. I love you, though, but I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Feed on what? The faithfulness of God. It's a wonderful meal, is it not? In those moments when life has you sort of famished, if you will, there's always a meal. And feed on it. And some even have this idea to graze upon. And why? Because I think in the idea of meditation, uh, what does a cow do when he chews the cud? Well, yeah, it's not the greatest picture, but that's exactly what happens. He chews on it, brings it up, he starts over again. He chews on it, brings it up, starts on it again, getting every bit out of it, does he not? That's the reality of it. Now, city folks are like, oh, gross, you know. <laughs> but remember, the culture, they would have they said, oh, I see that all the time. That makes so much sense. And so... For us to be a seeker of God, what must you do on his faithfulness? Chew on it. Chew on it. Now you're feeling anxious and you're doubting and you have fear. Hold on, soul. And this is where you have to learn to talk to your soul. You say, wait a minute, what is... No, thoroughly biblical, Psalm 42 and 43. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God, for you shall yet again praise him. 
So you have to say to your soul, hold on, soul. God is faithful. Hold on, soul. You have a heavenly father. Hold on, soul. God is trustworthy. And you feed on his faithfulness. Here is a third way that we are seekers, delighting in God's person. Notice verse 4, a wonderful, life-transforming verse for me over 30 years ago when I was wondering, God, what do I do next? What is the direction for my life? And it was right here, verse 30, um, I'm sorry, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, people can misconstrue that and they think, oh, that's great. I'll just go to more Bible study and I'll have more quiet time and he'll just give me all the things that I want. Well, if you go to more Bible study and have more genuine quiet times, you may realize that what you want is not what you need. Is this not true? Has anyone's desires ever changed once they sought the face of God? I'll start with raising my hand. So you think, this is what's best for my life. This is what I need. And then you seek the Lord. And what happens? You realize, oh, wow, my heart has changed. Now, there are times, and I'm not, it's, it's not necessarily has to be a rare thing, what you want and you seek the Lord, it's still what God gives you. Yeah, that happens. But there are times when you seek the Lord and he says, delight in the Lord, continually delight in him, find pleasure in him, and he will give you the desires of your heart because what happens if you're delighting in God, there's going to be a transformation of heart. And so you get to a stage in life where you can decide, oh, that's what I'd love to do. Someone asked me a question um, two days ago. They said, well, hey, your life, you've gone through these different stages in life. How do you make these decisions? I say two words, prayer and providence. I pray, I seek the Lord, and providence guides me. I decide this is what I feel like I want to do. I pray about it. It's not violating anything. I start pursuing it. And what does providence, God's kind providence do? At times he does what? No, this direction, <laughs> this direction. And sometimes it's a U-turn, and sometimes it's just a right, <laughs> and sometimes it's stop. This is what God does in our life. So, but you delight in his person, in God, not the circumstances. This is why the prosperity perversion, again, is so wrong. They're delighting in prosperity and not the person of God. Fourth. Commit to God's precepts. He says, commit your way to Yahweh. Uh, a decision that says it's concentrated in one sense. Um, I don't want to say final because we're continually doing it, but it means this sense in which I'm determined. Commit your way to his precepts. Live by, and that's consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. Which would mean uh, displayed in his precepts and his commands. So, number five, waiting on God's blessing. Oh, is this not a point in the Christian life that can be difficult? Waiting. Waiting, waiting. And in part because we live in a society where you don't have to wait for much. Is that not true? We do, and I, as I told you before, uh, when I had just come back from Africa, and I, maybe I was a little feisty about, you know, Western culture, because I go to these places, I'm thinking, what is it that we're so worried about? 
Really? I mean, many of the places where I go, especially when I go to Africa, Amazon Prime? No, friend. <laughs> no, friend, I'm not kidding you. There is no Amazon. It's barely male Prime. <laughs> no, none of this. You know, hey, tomorrow I want it. Two days I'll have it. Where do you want it delivered? Now I can have it delivered. There's a, you know, I can go into the CVS and I just go to the locker. Because it tends to get there a little quicker. I can go there, punch in a six-number code. Boom, it opens up. Here's my thing for me right there. And we're worried. Yeah, about life. Um, we don't like to wait sometimes. And that becomes built into the culture. And it's not just the culture of the world. It becomes also in the Christian culture as well. And all of us know that there have been moments in life when we had to wait, and by waiting there was a blessing in the waiting. Because often it is not just the end result, it's the process itself. And when you go through the process, that's when you learn, and that's when you grow. And at the end you're like, okay, God, I'm glad you gave it to me, but wow, the lessons were here. That's where I really learned in life. So you have to wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Um, I'll come to that next week. Yeah, look at verse 7. I'm going to have to go back on a thought, but I'll do it next week. Look at verse 7, waiting on God's blessing. Notice what he says in verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait, what? Patiently for him. Because there's two words here for wait in the Hebrew language. Verse 9, notice if you will, verse 9. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. So English, just wait and wait. Hebrew, it's not. So here, verse 7, wait, it means to wait in silence, relax, rest, is what he's saying. And this is why sort of the NASB adds this patiently with it. It's really not a word for patience. It's just saying it's wait, but it's implied that you wait, you relax, you're in silence, you're not worried, you're not fretting. God is in control. And then in verse 9, a different word for wait, because there he says, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. There the word implies anticipation. In one sense, I'm sort of waiting for it. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to inherit the land. You're going to do it. I, I know it's coming. But both mean that we have to wait. Sometimes it's just relax. Don't think about it too much. And others Wait, it's coming. Almost be prepared for it. We have to wait on God's timing. If you're going to be a seeker of God, these are some things you have to do. You have to trust. You have to remember. You have to delight. You have to commit. You have to wait. And next week we'll talk about three more and we'll talk about the benefits of seeking the Lord. Um. You have a Heavenly Father who cares for you. And just chew on that this week. Let that be your cud, if you will. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy. We bless you for who you are. Thank you that we can wait on you and you give what is good in your time and in your way. Amen.